0: Well, welcome uh, to Waterstone. We're glad that you guys are here. It's fun to be here. My name's Elliot. I get to preach the last sermon of the year, really the last sermon of the decade, I guess. Uh, Woo, there we go. Talk about saving the best for last, Larry, huh? (laughs) Way to take that serious. Uh, This year that we're wrapping up has been a year on neighboring. And uh, that's what our lead pastor, Larry, has really deemed it. And so everything from our VBS to the last bash that we had at the end of summer, uh, to Alpha, which we ran multiple times this year, a place for people who have some of life's biggest questions to come and be able to process openly and honestly. And then finally, our uh, holiday parties, where we welcome people in our neighborhoods into our house. This entire year, we have focused on neighboring. And by the way, if you're not part of our community here, this is not really your regular place you attend or you're just checking out the church today, you've been away for a while, whatever it is. The way that we define neighboring is pretty simple. We'll put it up here for you in a sec so that we're all on the same page. Neighboring is building genuine relationships through demonstrating God's love. So we at Waterstone believe that uh, that is a big call that God's put on our lives And while we have deemed 2019 the year of neighboring, we're not leaving that uh, in this year as we go into 2020. In fact, from my experience, what I've observed about my own life and the people that I know here at Waterstone, is that if you take neighboring seriously, then the better you neighbor, the more complex neighboring becomes. Does that make sense? The more that you take serious the art of neighboring the more challenging and complex and messy it can become. You can get to a point where you start to ask yourself this question. And we ask ourselves this. How do we respond when our relationships and convictions seem to conflict? You know, there are people in your life that are probably like this uh, in, in my life. But a couple years ago at New Year's Eve, my wife and I, she... Uh, invited her best girlfriend out and I invited one of my best guy friends out and not really a double date, we were just hanging out as a group. We were still dating at the time and we decided to go downtown uh, to celebrate New Year's Eve together. Now, these people are both people who don't necessarily know the truth of God's love for them, but we would love for them too. And yet, just like our definition of neighboring, we actually enjoy these people. They're our friends. You have people like this where you know, man, I'd love for you to know that God loves you, but honestly, I just love being your friend. And these are those people. We've cultivated friendships with them over years and years. So we decided we'll go out for amateur hour. It's what they call New Year's Eve. So we went downtown. We went to this restaurant. It's kind of restaurant bar place. It was a lot of fun. Um, they did a toast at midnight. It was cool. And to be honest, it was like, there was kind of a dorky, nerdy uh, Sorry if you were there for this, but like ping pong tournament, okay, where guys took themselves like way too seriously. I'm talking like sweatbands on the heads and sweatbands on your wrists. Which, by the way, like who sweats from the wrist, okay? I'm telling you the truth. And you know, like throwing sweat towels at the girlfriends on the side who are just like you know fonting over them. And so the, the night was fun and and it was New Year's Eve and all that. And then one of our two friends had said, hey can we go down uh, the street to a bar that I know of and they're having a party? So we're like, yeah, let's do it, let's go. So we went down the street and we go inside and there's a live band. It's kind of this jazz funk thing and everybody's dancing. It was a lot of fun. But as the night got further and further on and if you've been uh, out and you've seen this happen, there's a tipping point in nightlife. And we hit that tipping point and we kept going. And for me, I began to realize that there was a growing tension between the relationships I've worked hard to cultivate and the convictions I hold fast to of my faith. Now, you have these tensions in your life. In fact, I hope you experience these tensions, because if you don't, it likely means you're not taking either neighboring or your convictions seriously. And for you, they might be small, or maybe they're subtle throughout your work week. Or maybe they're exchanged over family dinners or being out with friends. Maybe it has to do with the convictions you have about alcohol or on entertainment and what you engage and how you enjoy certain forms of entertainment. Maybe they're the more big and pressing issues of our current context, like gender identity and sexual orientation. But regardless of the multitude of issues that can create a tension, a conflict in us, many of us know what it's like to feel a conflict between relationships we are cultivating and convictions that we have. Ultimately, I do believe this is an issue of spiritual maturity, and I don't mean that in a condescending way, because the truth is what I ended up doing, I don't know if it was right. And many situations that I hope you're thinking of in your own life now, there's not a clear right. But if you continue to wrestle, I believe, as we mature spiritually, and what I mean by that is as we know God's love more and integrate it more seamlessly into our lives, then we begin to more naturally operate in the tension and holding the tension. But for those of you who, like me, are continuing to take neighboring seriously and therefore are continuing to see greater complexity as you receive an invitation into someone else's life and extend one into yours, then we have to wrestle with this question. How do we respond when our relationships and our convictions seem to conflict? I believe Jesus not only answers this, I believe he models it. So, we're going to look at that passage. It's John 8. If you've got a, a Bible on your phone or if you've got a hard copy, that's great. We'll put it up here if not. So, if you would just follow along, I'll read out loud. At dawn, he, being Jesus, appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, This woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? See, they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were setting a trap for Jesus. Uh, In that day and age, the teachers of the law, also known as the scribes, were the ethicists of Jesus' time. They were the ones that cared a lot about the letter of the law and little about the intent of the law. They were the ones that filled up daytime advertising slots right after the price is right with uh, questions like, have you been hit by a semi? These were the Frank Azars of Jesus' time. And they were looking to trap Jesus. So let's look at this from Jesus' perspective for a moment, if you would. This is Jesus' choice. He's in a trap, all right? He either has to reject the law that says adultery is wrong and thereby defend the girl, which, by the way, he has preached and cultivated this whole ministry of compassion and forgiveness, or he has to accept the law And condemn her life, which by the way, he has said, not a jot or tittle from God's law should be abolished by my coming. And then on top of the ministry and voice he's cultivated, if Jesus says the law of Moses is inaccurate, he can be tried with serious offenses, by the way, by the local Jewish courts. But if he condemns her and affirms the law, you following with me? Jesus then, thank you, Jesus can get in trouble With the Roman authorities, because in this day and age, only a Roman official had the ability to cast a capital punishment judgment on a person's life. So, from all angles, Jesus is filled with questions and he's in this trap and he knows it. But you see, I think there's a modern version of the trap that the crowd offered to Jesus. And I believe it's called the false choice. The false choice you and I are presented with all the time. And and this is what it looks like for our modern context. Let's look at this. We can either accept and love a person God made or accept and trust the word God gave. And you can't do both. That's what the crowd shouts. So which will you choose and what will you do? You can accept a person God made, or you can trust the word God gave. And this is the false choice. Well, functionally speaking, what do we do? To be honest, I think we choose. That's what I see over and over. It's what I see a tendency in my own life to do. We choose. And there are those who will choose truth over love, and love over truth. And to be honest, part of what's deceptive about this is that both are godly virtues. Mercy, honesty, love, truth, faith. They both must be good choices. But that's not the punchline. The punchline is that I think we have a dirty little secret. As a church, I think our dirty little secret It's not that we resent the false choice, but we actually like the false choice. I think we're comfortable with the false choice. I think we're content to cut the tension between truth and love, between God's word and our relationships. And I think we're pleased to choose one or the other. And here's why. Let me put this up here. Because Either we don't have to love people we dislike and disagree with in the name of capital T truth, or we don't have to wrestle and reconcile tough statements of Jesus in the name of love. See, I think our dirty little secret is that we like the false choice, it gives us permission to cut the tension and only choose one. I don't think that is Jesus' example. So I want to speak to both sides, but I want to speak first to those who would be willing. And you know, we're both in here today, and I find myself in both camps. But I want to first speak to those who'd be willing to cut the tension and abandon love in the name of truth. You know, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they did this. And if I'm honest, I think it probably was initially about truth, but just like our modern context, I think it drifted away from that and became about something else. Tribalism. Protecting our tribe. Knowing if Jesus is on the inside or the outside of it and then making the lines clear. See, I don't think they were worried about saving a marriage when they rush this girl in. And I definitely don't think they were worried about justice. I think they were worried About their tribe and protecting it. And to be honest, this is a natural part of human nature. We see this, and sociologists have documented this for decades and decades that people unite quicker with stronger bonds immediately, or at least initially, over things that we hate and we despise than things we believe in and we love. Some of you might know this. The most recent dating app that just came out is called Hater. It's a true story. You get to you get to say what you hate, and then you get matched with people. So it'll be like slow walkers, love or hate, mouth breathers, love or hate. And then they pair you up with people who hate the same things. And people find relationships this way. To be honest, this is a normal and natural human response. And it's a completely unacceptable Christian response. Some of you might be in the house tonight or today, this morning, and you're thinking to yourself, holy smokes, what did I just walk into? I came to your Christmas Eve service, it was cool, and I came back and now I'm hearing this. (laughs) Or a friend invited me and what am I hearing right now? And your friend, by the way, is thinking, oh my gosh, I invited them and what are they hearing right now? So I want to give some context to where we're at. This is a family meeting in a sense. You know, uh, when I grew up, I have two brothers, I'm the middle one. My parents would sit us down and they would say, okay, look, my dad or my mom would say, when your mom says no, don't come ask me. Or my mom would say the reverse "When Your dad says, no, don't come ask me. This is a family meeting. We're taking care of some House rules. But for those of you who might be visiting, maybe this is your first time back to church in a long time, which welcome, we're glad you're here. Maybe you got invited by a friend or you're not sure even if you would ever put the name Christian in your title. That's okay. The thing I really hope that you get from this as you listen in and you see this family meeting is who Jesus is. Because this is really a meeting about how we want to emulate his model But for you, I hope you see who Jesus actually is a person who holds the tension between truth and love, between law and relationship. So, back to our family meeting. You know what bothers me, to be honest? Is that I think oftentimes the real tension we feel is not between our spiritual convictions and our relationships, it's lesser convictions, like political convictions where we don't necessarily know you, but we know we don't agree with you, and therefore we know we don't like you. And this is true on both sides of the aisle. So please stop thinking, oh, that's so true about Democrats, or that's so true about Republicans. It's true about us. You know, if the words Hunter Biden or impeachment inquiry elicit a stronger emotional response from you than someone saying the words, I don't believe there's anything after death? That's bull. That is wrong. I want to demonstrate how I see this tribalism and I think how it's documented. I want to show you a study Barna Research Group has performed a couple years ago. I think it was August of 2016. They released this information I want you to look at these numbers real quick. This is the general public was asked this question. Which groups do you think would be difficult for you to have a natural and normal conversation with? So Muslims, 73% said it would be difficult. And Mormons, 60. Atheists, 56. Evangelicals, 55. And the LGBT community, 52. And now the numbers we're about to throw up are when evangelicals were asked this. 87% 87% said difficult with Muslims. 67, Mormons. 85, atheists. Sorry, 28% said it'd be hard to have a conversation with evangelicals. <laughs> to be fair, I do know some evangelicals, okay? And 87% the LGBT community. This is a result of us being more concerned with capital T, truth, than love. And I'm not saying you should be more concerned with the other. I'm saying you shouldn't cut the tension because this is what it produces. Jesus wasn't content with sacrificing love in the name of truth unless it was absolutely necessary. And I think for us, the times it's absolutely necessary are few and far between. So now I wanna to talk to the side that would say, you know what, I honestly probably lean towards letting go of some of the things Jesus has said in, in, in order to love the people in my life well. And just like the other side, again, I think these are both, these are godly virtues and I can understand why. I think it makes it easier not to wrestle with some of the things that Jesus himself said that are harder to hear and definitely harder to repeat but I wanna look at what Jesus does. You see, when Jesus leans back up and he's left alone, this really intimate moment that the author is bringing us in on, it's just Jesus and this woman. He doesn't look at her and say, those guys, am I right? I mean, so serious. He doesn't say, well, you know what? It's AD 30, for goodness sakes. Who really cares about adultery? What is it, AD 12? 12? Jesus acknowledges that there is a law, that adultery is not right. He doesn't sacrifice. Truth in the name of love. One of the ways I see this happening uh, in, in the church right now is with different generations. I want to show you another poll that was done by Barna. This one was released this year. It's the most recent research we have on generational beliefs and faith and trends. And if you can't read it, I'll explain. The left column, the orange uh, shades, are millennials. And then you have Gen X, which is kind of like 40 to 55, and boomers, uh, which are the next generation, and elders, which is beyond that, obviously. And the first two questions that ask millennial Christians, these are evangelicals, are this. Would you agree that part of my faith means being a witness about Jesus? Millennial evangelicals said yes, 96%. And how about this? The best thing that could ever happen to someone is for them to come to know Jesus. 94% said yes. But I want you to skip down to the second to last row and look at that. When the same group was asked, is it it wrong to share one's personal beliefs with someone of a different faith in hopes that they will one day share the same faith, almost half of millennial evangelicals said, yes, it's wrong. Even though I believe that the best thing that can happen to us is to have a relationship with Jesus, to know that God's love is real and present in my life and to feel his spirit with me wherever I go. They still said, but it is wrong, half almost, to share that with someone in the hopes that they'd experience that. And then if you've already gotten ahead of me, that last statement says, do you agree with the statement, if someone disagrees with you, it means that they're judging you. 40% said yes. Now we don't have statistics right now on Generation Z which is kind of like those who are just recently been born through about 18 to 19, 20 maybe at the oldest. But we can see a trend is growing. Waterstone, this is love sacrificing truth. This is what it means to feel the tension, not know what to do, which I get and I've been there, and then as a result to clip it. See, the beauty of how Jesus responds is that he didn't end with, neither do I condemn you. Jesus followed up with, go now and leave your life of sin. Jesus didn't use his conviction of the truth to make a point. He used it to point her in the direction of life. For those of you who know you're in this camp today, I don't think it's that you don't want the convictions of our scriptures. I think it's you haven't seen how to hold them well in tension with loving other people. And Jesus demonstrates that with his life. So my encouragement to you, if that's you in this camp, is to continue to wrestle with Jesus's statements reconcile them with the world that you see and the relationships that you have even if it means just one finger is being held on some of these topics or harder words wrestle and do due diligence to reconcile because without holding the tension if we release we don't have much to point them to the truth of God's love so how did Jesus respond What was Jesus' take on all of this? Well, I think you've seen this. When asked if you reject a human, a person God made, or the law God gave, Jesus' response, the only thing he actually rejects in this situation, is the false choice. He rejects the idea that he has to choose. Neighboring is messy. Neighboring is complex. It's difficult. And if you continue to take it seriously, you'll feel this tension and you'll be in these moments. But if you continue to feel the tension and are unwilling to release one hand on the word God gave and another hand on the relationships with people God made, then you will become a bridge. A bridge that's filled with grace and with truth. And you'll find yourself in situations you won't know Am I affirming something or accepting something or validating something I don't want to or am I affirming and accepting a person I deeply want to and I don't know the answer but hold the tension between grace and truth because you will become a bridge. Jesus was the first bridge and guess what, friends? He was a bridge between that truth and you. This is what John 1.14 says. The word, who's Jesus in this section, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, read this with me if you would, full of grace and truth. Jesus was the first bridge. Be a bridge. Reject the false choice that the crowd shouts to you. Hold fast to truth and to love. The question that many of us might be asking is then how, how do I do this? And the reality is that this is a issue of spiritual maturity, like I said, when we started. And, And I mean that in an encouraging way to say that as we grow, we know more of how to integrate God's love and God's truth into our life in all areas. The moments we feel uncomfortable and we're not sure if we're betraying one or the other. So here are some takeaway points I'd like you to think about. The first is this. Look for the false choices in your world. Uh, Many of you know what I'm talking about because you experience them at the Thanksgiving or Christmas table. Some of you experience them in your workplace, or many of you do, where you see that there seems to be a false choice between relationship and convictions, and you don't know how to resolve them always. In the conversations you have with friends, On platforms, on social media, and whether you like or retweet or dislike or whatever you do, what is my Christian response? Be aware of them as a starting place. Look for them. The second thing I'd encourage you is listen. For those of you who fall more in the camp where you're more likely to cut the tension and err on the side of truth over love, I wanna show you a study that I came across it's from the same Barna research study that was produced this year. And I want you to look at this. They went around and asked people who did not consider themselves Christians. If you were to have a conversation, if you were to talk with someone about faith, what are the most, uh, what are the best characteristics that you would want in that person? Kind of a weird question, like right? But they asked them that. And this is what they said, the top two listens without judgment, does not force a conclusion. You know, I was reading through the book where they published this, and you can't see the last two, but I wanna emphasize this, because I wanna ask, what do we often think we have to do more of? The last two that, that this crowd said, yes, these would be the least likely that I'd want, were people who saw inconsistencies with other worldviews and Christians who knew all the answers to my questions. As a church, I don't think we, and I mean this in the broad sense, have done an excellent job of training and encouraging and affirming that the people in our church would know how to listen without judgment and not force conclusions. That's what Alpha is all about. I think many of us feel as though we need to be able to see inconsistencies, whip out mental apologetic flashcards, and have all the answers. That's not what these people are looking for. So I'd encourage you, if you're on this side, listen, and on this side. Those who would say, no, I I choose love, I can see that, over truth, my encouragement to you would be, listen to the sayings of Jesus. And and if you don't like them, keep listening. Listen and allow Jesus' whole speech and life to be accepted Or to be heard by your mind. And see what what he reveals. Ask him to help you understand the places where his words and your life do not seem to make sense. And the last one is this. Ask God. There's a place where you just have to say, God, look, I got this family member. I got this coworker. I've got this, my mom just married. And you've got to say, God, I need your wisdom. And I need your love in order to be like you in our world. For those of you today, you might be in here and the Jesus that we speak about is an appealing Jesus. And I wanna say in a moment, we're gonna pray that all it means to say, Jesus, I want you, maybe the Christians I've experienced I'm not so crazy about, but I like you, to say, Jesus, I don't even know what this means fully, but I wanna say, I trust you. I believe in you. I like the way you led your life and I wanna live my life the same way. And I need you. So as we close in prayer, I'd encourage you, if that's true, feel free to say that privately to to God. And then make sure you share that with someone, myself, I'll be up front, or anyone else in the church afterwards. We'd love to hear that. But for the rest of us, be a bridge, reject the false choice, and hold fast to love and truth. Let's pray. Jesus, it's in your name alone that we ask for your grace, your mercy, your kindness, and your goodness, to be a bridge in our world just like you were, that me, we might be unwilling to sacrifice love or truth and thereby reject the false choice. God, for those who would say, Jesus, I like you, but more importantly, I believe in you, would you hear them now and accept them? In Jesus' name, amen.